The information on this podcast is not a substitute for help from a licensed mental health professional. Welcome back to episode 60 of the Practice of Being Seen podcast. I'm your host, Rebecca Wong, relationship therapist, mentor, and consultant to therapists and kick-ass change-making professionals. The Popscast is a collection of connectfulness conversations where we join together to examine how to create deeply restorative ripples of change within ourselves and within the world around us. This week's guest, Larry Stein, is a private practice clinical neuropsychologist in Red Bank, New Jersey. Larry calls those with neurological conditions the most vulnerable of the vulnerable. And he says that even young children are aware of their difference from others. Together, we discuss our personal experiences with learning disabilities, how learning disabilities shape self-esteem, the extensive effort that goes into assessment, why there are no longitudinal studies being done on those living with learning disabilities, and why integration is the key. We explore how neurodiversity ripples into all the facets of our life and society at large, and When we talk about neurodiversity, are we all somewhere on that spectrum or is there a normal? (laughs) The truth is that there is no normal. And that must mean that there's no one way to learn, no one way to communicate, no one way to view or be in the world. Neurodiversity or The natural variance in human genomes that result in a range of neurological conditions from ADHD and autism to dyslexia and numerous others surely must influence more than just childhood education. In what ways might it influence our relationships as adults? And what role might trauma play in neurodiversity? Hop in with us and find out. So when you talk about neurodiversity, Mm -hmm. can you just break that down for me before we begin so that I can lead us in there in a competent way? Sure. Well, neurodiversity is, there's sort of groupings of sort of issues and disorders and, you know, those being sort of dyslexia, ADD, ADHD, Tourette syndrome, the, the spectrum disorders, dyspraxia, dyscalculia that are sort of if you take Venn diagrams and you put them all together, you're going to have a lot of overlapping cognitive issues that go along with those. And those sort of include working memory, problems with time perception, sequencing, listening skills, processing speed, a lot of the stuff we're talking about, but also what we know is sort of, you know, moving even further out, things like low self-esteem, anxiety, depression. So there's issues connected to that as well. And what we know as well is that when people have something like ADD, ADHD, there's about a 50% chance that they have co-occurring learning disability. And that's huge. And there's a 75% chance that there's a co-occurring psychiatric disability or disorder. And that's huge as well. And when you say a psychiatric disorder, you're talking about things anxiety. like anxiety, depression. Right. Would, I've heard some research. Mm-hmm. We're already just diving right into sure. the conversation here. Sure. So maybe we'll back up and go through. Okay, yeah, 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 yeah. But I've heard some research that also connects learning disabilities to trauma. Yeah, and one thing I do want to talk about is the problem with learning disabilities is they are truly the forgotten, lack of better terms, redhead stepchild of issues because they are neurological, they are vastly underdiagnosed, and we don't know much, uh, believe it or not, there's not a lot of research about later life issues related to these sorts of things. But we do know, and this is staggering, that there was an epidemiological study done in Canada that children with dyslexia, I can find the number, it's staggering. Children with dyslexia are much more likely to have a history of physical abuse in their past. I think it's 35% of adults with dyslexia report that they were physically abused before they turned 18. Now, that sounds like a lot, right? It does sound like a lot. That sounds like a really big number. What's truly heartbreaking, though, to me, that's not so bad. Because when I look at the literature on things like intellectual disabilities, and those are 
what we used to the sort of pejorative term for mental retardation, that number jumps to 75%. So it's kind of safe to assume that if someone has a history of this sort of the neurodiversity, they're much more likelihood to have a history of some type of abuse in their past. They're simply the most vulnerable of the most vulnerable. Is there a connection point there to being misunderstood? Again, we just don't know. Because again, most of the research... In your experience, right. you know, as you, you work with this population, right. as you understand it, what do you think? I would think that they're vulnerable. Okay. And that they come from a place where the struggle at school, they already come sort of one of the better studies that was done actually on children with dyslexia is that they have a very reverse locus of control. So that when most of us fail at something, we tend to have a pretty healthy sense of ego. And most of the time, we kind of attribute that to an external factors. Okay. With a child with dyslexia or even adults, they tend to see it as more internal. And when they succeed, they're much more likely to think that they've succeeded because of luck. So it puts them in a more, in my opinion, it puts them in a much more vulnerable position to be They're grown. not necessarily seeing their own abilities. Right. Exactly. And when it comes to different types of abuse, especially, you know, maybe childhood sexual abuse, my guess is that they're probably, you know, easier to groom. And they would probably warm up and respond really well to someone who at least portrays to them that they are all these things that they do not think that they are. So that's what breaks my heart. Oh, yeah. I was just about to say that's heartbreaking. Yeah. Now, we know as well that children with, you know, you probably know, familiar with the research that children, adolescents and adults with ADD have all different sorts of issues later in life. You know, they're more likely to become divorced and there's all sorts of issues. And I kind of suspect the same thing goes with dyslexia, especially because of the sort of high comorbidity rates. Yeah, I see it in a lot of the couples that I work with where they're struggling with their connections, with their attachment styles. There's Mm -hmm. There's a disconnect there. I often sense that there's also, at least on one partner, if not both, a difference in learning styles. Mm -hmm. You know, that that's part of the communication breakdown is that they're having trouble tracking conversations. Yeah. You know, there's lots of different reasons that could be happening. And I'll be happy to talk about sort of the different sort of the cognitive processes that are important. And you might be talking about things like fluid reasoning. I'll talk about what that's all about. Or it might be working memory, what that's all about. And it might be verbal comprehension. And there's so many problems that places that some of these skills can break down to cause problems. Are they having problems either processing verbal information and or producing verbal information? And are they having word finding problems? So there's lots of different areas where this stuff can kind of go on. And then there's another sort of area of neurodiversity that is called alexithymia. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that. I'm not. Tell okay. me. Alexithymia is another sort of neurological base condition where people don't recognize their own emotions. It would almost be like emotional blindness. And while they still may experience emotions, the sort of the range of the emotions that they experience are sort of, it's truncated. And this is different than dissociation. It is very different than dissociation. They can read social skills. They can interact very effectively. It's not a form of autism, but they just don't you know, tend to experience emotions and or recognize emotions. Generally, we don't see them in therapy very often because outside of... They don't recognize the emotions. Right, right. But at the same time, they truly, if you're not experiencing these emotions, they don't have a tendency to become depressed. They don't... (sighs) Or anxious. And so what happens is actually they tend to be kind of very successful. And so because they can actually, they're not sociopathic, but they can navigate relationships pretty well because they don't get caught up in the emotionality. But the problem comes in a marriage is when you go to see the Grand Canyon and one person is like, wow, this is the most beautiful thing in the world. And the other person's like, yeah, it's pretty cool. There's not sort of that emotional reciprocity that happens. And that's where things kind of can start feeling off, where one partner might feel unseen or not understand why the other partner can't meet them. Yeah. Right. And so I, for bringing up Alexa, yeah. I mean, I've never heard of that. And it makes a lot of sense. So, you know, as we're talking about neurodiversity, I'm thinking that there's a really big range in here. Yeah, right? it's huge, huge. And along with that range, there's some, I even hesitate to say this word, some degree of normalness. Oh, yeah, without a doubt. 
Yep. It is such, these evaluations, as you probably know or have seen, are so in-depth and they require so much effort because you really have to assess every aspect of, let's say, a child. Let's just slow this down for a minute because I'm not sure if all of our listeners know how in-depth these assessments actually are. Right. Right. How long does it take for both the clinician to perform one, but also for the person who's being assessed to go through an assessment? It takes me 10 to 12 hours, typically. What I will do is I'll start with a consultation with a caregiver or caregivers, get as much information from them, consult with a pediatrician, consult with a teacher, instructors, start gathering as much information, background information as I can. Then what I'll do is I will go to the school and I'll do an in-school observation of the child before the child sort of even knows who I am. So there's no sort of participant observation sort of effect. Then what I'll do is I'll meet with the child and I'll do a consultation to build rapport and get, you know, information about what they're experiencing. Again, everything from how are things at home to how are things at school to their emotional life to the social life to the activities they enjoy as much information as I can. And then step by step, we start doing the actual testing. And while I don't have a, you know, a set battery, there tends to be some, you know, go to cognitive measures that I'll use. In each step, I'm also assessing, you know, what has to happen next. So we'd be doing a pretty in-depth cognitive battery, a pretty in-depth academic battery. And then I would also start, depending on where the data takes me, I would start doing some different types of possibly some rating scales for the teachers and the parents. And that could include rating scales for executive functioning, as well as emotional and social. If the child is old enough, an adolescent, they might do a personality assessment as well. Then I take all that data and I perform different types of statistical analyses and I start looking for indications. And it's a very tedious process because no cognitive ability and no academic ability exists in a vacuum. So, Even when we're looking at things, let's say, like visual memory, okay, even things like visual memory still has an auditory component. Because if you think about something and you're trying to look at it, memorize it, you're probably also using an internal dialogue as well. So all these things are connected. And what you really have to do is isolate them as much as possible. So then you can figure out where, let's say, with reading. Is the child having a problem? Are they having a problem at the very basic level of the auditory processing? And are they having trouble encoding and decoding the basic, you know, sounds? Are they having trouble with working memory, which is being able to read something and hold it in their memory till they get to the end of the sentence so that they can understand a complete thought? Are they having trouble encoding it into long-term memory? And then are they having trouble with fluid abilities, which is the ability to take one piece of information that they've learned, another piece of information that they've learned, and then create a third piece of information or sort of things like making inferences or being able to use deductive reasoning. And so we start to realize what a complex thing this is. Then as I start to do the statistical analyses, hypotheses, I start doing different types of searches with the research to see what's connected to with what, what's known, what their scores are, what by there's an algorithm we use, what their predicted scores are. And I start, you know, finalizing my hypotheses. And then the work really starts. Maybe we've identified the things that are actually happening. The work starts after the identification exactly. of what's exactly. happening for the individual. Right. Exactly. Then what we're doing is we are now making a plan. And so you have to know about education and you have to know what specifically things does the child need. And so this plan is a plan that is going to set this individual up to understand how they learn. Right. And so you would be using accommodations, what they might need in their environment to learn more effectively, as well as you need to know what specific interventions. Then... There's another, the sort of the last aspect, and this is a role that I do enjoy, is I then become an advocate for that child. 
because these evaluations are also kind of complicated because they have economic and sort of political ramifications as well, that I have to treat the work that I do pretty much like a forensic assessment because there is a chance that the reports and the evaluations will end up in something called a process hearing which is a parent may not be getting what they advocate for the child, and then they will go to in front of a judge and go to court, and I might be called to testify. So there's so many steps that I do within this process, and it always keeps it fascinating. I'm always learning and discovering new things. What do you think is, I'm kind of like playing with this right now, mm-hmm. because there's so much in here, yeah. right? across the board, I mean, there's so many different kinds of neurodiversity. There's so many different kinds of things that we see showing up here. But you were mentioning earlier that some of the stuff that goes along with this are things like low Mm self-esteem, right? Can you talk a little bit about that? Like, How does the spectrum of neurodiversity affect an individual's sense of self as they're developing? Sure. As adults, we kind of don't think much about maybe our children's experience at school during the day, but you kind of have to accredit to their sort of life's work. And children, even when I see second graders and third graders, they're very aware that there's something going on. They're very aware that there's a difference. And so they start to question what's going on with them. And unfortunately, and it still goes on today, probably the most common and the first message they get is that you're being lazy or you're not working hard enough. Mm -hmm. So that obviously to a young child is going to be internalized. So what they might do is a bit of learned helplessness. They might start to give up and, you know, sort of avoid. And we do see more school avoidance in children with neurodiversity learning disabilities. I think it's improving, but there's, there's differences in peer relationships as well. There's a hierarchy often in schools, and children with learning disabilities and neurodiversity are lower in that hierarchy. And I would think that sort of that's the kind of stuff that once we internalize it, it sticks with us for a really long time. Yeah, I would now, agree I, with I that. Could, Yeah, you know, I'll sort of give, do a little self-disclosure is that I'm dyslexic. I was first diagnosed at the, sort of the stone age of dyslexia. And I remember it very well. And it was also sort of the special education was probably just a new thing going on. So what happened was... I'm going to pause you and sure. take a guess that when you were diagnosed, it was not half as thorough as the diagnosis process right. that you've described. Right. right. In fact, what they thought was they thought that it was a visual thing and it wasn't. And then later on, even kind of tested myself and learned that it really is the auditory processing. But what happened was, was there were not a lot of options for children with special education needs. So what happened was I was taken out of my school and I was placed in a different school within my district, but fairly far away. And it was a self-contained classroom. But the problem was there was so much diversity within that self-contained classroom that you had people who were very high functioning and you had people who were very, very low functioning. So without getting a lot of feedback, I started to think that maybe I was really one of the low-functioning ones. And unfortunately, at first, my performance started to decrease. I wasn't learning, and I was actually regressing on a lot of academic stuff, and they couldn't figure out why. I knew why, but I, I don't think I could express it. Is I thought there was something really wrong with me, and I was just living up to that sort of self-expectation. And I even remember sort of thinking if I looked in the mirror, I would actually be able to see that. And then somehow it came up and no, there's nothing wrong with you or it's just this. And it took many, many, many years to still move beyond that. So I think that's how it can affect that self-concept. Yeah, I have a very similar story myself. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. For me, I was diagnosed with dysnomia Mm -hmm. in my high school years. and it was prompted by a process of really not doing very good on vocabulary tests yeah, yeah, and trying to figure out why after, you know, tons and tons of work behind it. And it really explained a lot once I finally learned that that was the thing. And right. there was something about the process that came after the diagnosis that was also really liberating. 
it allowed me to figure out who I am and how I learn. And I imagine that that's not something that's unique to me, that that liberating kind of process is something that you probably see a lot in this work. Right. And what I sort of mentioned before that we talk about sort of the work begins after the diagnosis and you start talking about accommodations and different interventions. But what you're also talking about is a third leg, which is compensatory strategies, which are really important as well. And my guess is that those don't come to a little bit later in life because that's something that we have to figure out ourselves. And my guess is it's a lot of trial and error. So it takes a lot longer. And I think as we do that, we also sort of learn and find our niche. So, and that sort of reinforces those compensatory strategies. What do you mean by finding our niche? Well, I've been doing this for 15 years now. And um, I'll give you an example is sort of some of the very young people I've been doing work with evaluations with are probably now starting college or kind of finishing up their education. And so part of what we would do from time to time is just look at personal strengths and weaknesses. And while this individual probably will never really be able to read beyond the sixth grade level, they had a tremendous, tremendous aptitude in visual spatial abilities. And, you know, some other further testing, we kind of looked at things like creativity and kind of this individual has gone and sort of used these compensatory strategies to pursue a career in, I believe it's glass blowing, and a really artistic sort of career where he can minimize those academic skills and maximize the cognitive abilities that he needs to be successful. Got it. I think that's something that we all probably do in different ways yeah. in our lives, right. no matter where we fall on the spectrum. Right. Right. And yet, for some of us, it's that much more important to right. feel and experience success. Right. So what I was saying as well is, so what will happen is, and what's been happening is that that particular environment will reinforce that. He will be around more and more like-minded people with skills. And what starts to happen is things like self-concept, depression, anxiety, you know, there's changes. This is where you were talking before about how no cognitive ability exists in a vacuum, that when you change the environment that you're in, because you put yourself in a place where you have more success available mm-hmm. to you, your, your skills are stronger in this area, that vacuum changes. Right, exactly. Yeah. I love that. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Because, you know, the testing that I do is sometimes it's kind of heartbreaking because you're kind of coming back and you're sort of giving a family some news and it's going to be sort of saddled with them for the duration. But again, you don't sort of, because it's not true, you don't paint a dark, dark picture because there's just going to probably be some unorthodox ways of being successful. And I think this is, you know, probably a great way for us to kind of move this conversation a little bit and shift gears into, you know, we're all different humans. And we all have different ways of being in this world and in relationships. And I think one of the things that this conversation around neurodiversity really opens up is just how we can really sense the world in different ways and that there's not one right way to be in the world. That's very well said. Yeah, that is certainly true. And, you know, as well as when you kind of nurture someone with some of the neurodiversity, they can use some of those skills to obviously become more empathic and to be more understanding. So I think that's really true. I wonder if there's another side to this too, you know, something that are more on this. Are we all on this spectrum, Larry? Yeah, you know, even when I do cognitive testing, no one has a steady profile. There's tremendous differences, even within, I think they call them neurotypical folks. Mm -hmm. So there's always a tremendous amount of diversity. So yes, we all have these very individual differences. And so there's not just one way to learn or one way to communicate right? or see the world. (laughs) Right. Okay. Talk to us a little bit more because I know, you know, somewhere along the way I've picked up and I'm not exactly sure where I've picked this up, but I've picked up that trauma can influence learning disabilities. Yeah. You know, we definitely know that trauma affects the brain and it decreases a lot of those very important cognitive processes that we need for learning. It can predispose us or? Both. Okay. Both. We know even later in life, a history of, you know, 
childhood trauma can predict so many things. And it just goes to say that if your brain is, you know, we, we know trauma will decrease the number of neurons in your brain, learning and especially academic learning is a relatively new thing. And it's not necessary evolutionary. So my guess is that's going to be one of the first things that suffers on a very sort of micro level. On a macro level, you have seen as well, I'm sure that, you know, a child's not only that, but not going to be able to pay attention. They're going to have their mind elsewhere. There's going to be other concerns. So it probably affects us in ways that we we can't begin to realize yet. Right. And, you know, I know lately that a lot of schools and a lot of parents are starting to talk about things like play and recess time and how those things are so important. I wonder if this also connects into this because play, what I think about is it gives us an opportunity to learn things in different ways. Yes. And of course, the social intelligence as well, which I don't really have a measure of. And such an important factor, especially for someone who's got in that sort of neurodiversity area. It also gives them an opportunity to show competence. Yes. Because part of the compensatory strategies would also be, or the sort of the strategies that we might use is if you have a child who struggles at learning, they may excel in the basketball court and they need that. They need competence in other areas. And the more we take away those sort of other parts of life that are so important, probably the more it affects their self-esteem. Yeah. I'm thinking, you know, to stories that I've heard over the years of children misbehaving in, in class because of you know, their struggle to learn and being sent out of the classroom or having recess taken away or different kinds of things that I think are probably not as helpful as the impulse to, they're just not so helpful. Yeah. So I think there's a lot that we can all stand to learn in here around how can we make space in our society, in our lives, in our classrooms, in our homes for more neurodiverse learning, more neurodiverse communicating. I wonder if you have anything to add to that. For me, the most important thing is early detection makes a massive amount of difference. If we can detect the, these things at about the second grade level, maybe third grade level, that, and there's some good research coming on out, that could have tremendous positive impact on the rest of a child's academic development. What is it about that particular age? Well, think about something like dyslexia. So what happens, the first task that we have in schools, we learn to read, okay? So we're using a lot of those auditory processing skills, being able to encode and decode information. So what happens is we're learning the rules and we're learning what things sound like and we're learning to put them together. Then at about second, third grade, we're not learning to read. We're reading to learn. So as children make that switch, the children who are still learning to read, there's no fluency, are getting left behind at an exponential rate. And that gap just grows and grows and grows year after year after year. And we know early intervention is highly effective Because what we start to do is sort of one of the best interventions out there is sort of a multi-sensory approach that if the child is not able to process that auditory information using other senses, using other skills to complement that has a much greater opportunity to provide success. You're talking about reading interventions such as like Orton-Gillingham. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. So... Talk to my listeners a little bit more because I think I might understand this but not have the words to express it. Mm-hmm. But talk to us a little bit more about this multisensory approach. What does that mean? What does it look like? Well, as I said, sort of when we talk about reading as being an auditory processing, auditory is only one of our senses. And so when you use those OG approaches that you mentioned, you're incorporating all the other senses. And so with touch, with sometimes even smell, all these different sorts of other ways that information enters into our brain helps to solidify it. 
is there a connection between people with learning disabilities also being highly sensitive in other ways? With the neurodiversity, yeah, there tends to be higher sort of rates of sort of, you know, tactile sensitivity, auditory sensitivity as well. Yeah. People who just walk through the world, understanding the world in, in, on different sensory levels. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. I'm thinking that I often think of the world in colors and shapes mm-hmm. and stuff like that. So that's just one of the ways that like I process something. If I'm thinking about a word because I have this dysnomia, I'm often thinking yeah. about, oh, the feeling or the color or the taste of it. Mm-hmm. There's some other sensory way that I experience things. And yeah. I think that's probably what you're talking about a little bit as well. Yeah. My daughter has synesthesia, which is a very common neurological thing that basically there are certain colors that she can taste. And so sometimes when she's learning, she uses that to her benefit. And that's sort of that multi-sensory sort of approach. That's just beautiful. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think there's gifts in here. And I think that's something that we also need to explore a little in this conversation is that these aren't all disabilities. Right. That's exactly correct. They're different abilities. Right. Yeah. But, you know, what the thing I struggle with, and I think this is sort of what you were also kind of wanting to talk even more about, is how does it affect relationships later in life? Yeah. And because things like dyslexia are sort of a, I was saying, doesn't really get enough research because it's an educational issue, typically thought of, but it's a neurological condition. And once school is over, most people just go on and don't think much about it. So we don't have a lot of longitudinal studies when it comes to folks with dyslexia. The insurance companies don't really want to reimburse for testing for dyslexia because they don't consider it medically necessary. And then schools often don't want to pay for more in-depth testing that really kind of does what, you know, what I try to do, which is incorporate everything because it gets expensive and they're on a limited budget. So that's part of where children fall through. So the financial burden falls on the family. It definitely does. Now, what people can do is they can become familiar with the laws, the educational laws, and they can request an independent educational examination. And so oftentimes when people call, I do suggest that they do that because that will get them a much better evaluation. I'm kind of going off topic, but one of my frustrations, especially those early evaluations, is when schools do an evaluation, it's a very piecemeal operation where you'll have one person who might do the cognitive testing, and then you'll have someone who will do the academic testing, and then you'll have maybe the school counselor or the social work do the psychological but there's no or very there's no limited. one that's seeing the whole picture. There's no not only that, but there's no integration. And that's really the most important thing. What do you mean by that integration? I know that means coming together, but what do you mean by it in this way? Recognizing how those cognitive skills are impacting those academic abilities, also adding in the psychological factors. It's kind of like your Dr. House. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah. So, you know, I love that this is going there. And I'm curious now, where do you see this taking, like, Because the testing isn't really kind of covered. That financial burden falls on the family. To really understand it, you need this more comprehensive kind of holding. And yet, it's not something that's incredibly accessible. So there's a lot of people walking around in the world, possibly without the the formal diagnosis, without even the self-understanding of what's going on for them. And they grow up to become adults. And now, when we're not in school anymore, there's like no focus on learning disabilities. Right. And we're in relationships and what? Okay, so like I said, there's not a lot of research, but here's what I suspect happens is I suspect that it comes out in slightly unusual ways, because if you think about these cognitive abilities and you think about things like time management, maybe money issues, even problems at work, someone who might struggle to hold a job, I think that it creates conflict in secondary ways. And Unfortunately, if you don't understand really what's kind of going on, that there might be this sort of neurodiversity, some dyslexia, or some of these issues going on, again, I think it sort of replicates maybe some of those early childhood stuff, which is you're lazy or you don't care. And so I think that's the way it really might impact adult relationships even more. 
I'm thinking of so many couples where one partner turns to the other and says, you are just lazy. You don't care about me. Like, this is the language that I see in relationships all the time. Yeah. Or irresponsible. Yes. And so you don't care. And it's almost like I would imagine kind of as an adult, it's just like you no longer have sort of the structure that school brings. And so basically everything part of your life, whether it's stuff at home or work, just gets thrown into this big basket and it gets all jumbled. And, you know, I think this is where, you know, the anxiety comes in that there's a freezing thing that might happen. And so nothing gets done because of that anxiety and there's an avoidance. And what might be so easy for one person becomes so difficult for the other person. And sometimes these are just really basic things. It's not that they don't know how to do these things, but things like paying a bill on time or, you know, making a call to have the car fixed. And I think that that's Seeing a where, task through, like starting exactly. off with the laundry and finishing folding. Oh, my gosh. Right, right. Exactly. Exactly. And so how these things show up in terms of distribution of household chores and just, you know, the equanimity at home, because we know that households where at least the caregivers have this sense of equanimity, they tend to be happier couples. But if this is kind of getting in the way of even that kind of balance and that equanimity, it's not necessarily that people don't care. In fact, if there's sort of those issues sort of with some sort of that fluid reasoning, that sort of ability to sort of deduct and induct reason or sort of predict, a lot of it's just out of their awareness. They don't know what they don't know and they can't see what they can't see. So what I would see sometimes as a couple is someone say, well, you know, how come this happened? And I was like, I just couldn't even imagine that happening. Or how can I predict these things? Well, the other person is just very easily can predict sort of what happened in a logical sequence. You know, another thing that I see quite often with my couples is the way that they talk to each other. You know, like I'll be sitting with a couple and one has a more tangential flow in terms of how they explain a situation. They'll start maybe in the middle and then they'll work their way back to the beginning and they'll come back and eventually they'll get to the point. And in the process of that telling, their partner will get all flustered and frustrated and feel somewhat defensive because they don't understand the flow of the storytelling. Yeah. And that's often something that I work with a lot is trying just to kind of see what those patterns are and helping couples kind of build that resilience to understand each other from, you know, within these different lenses. But I wonder if in these situations where I'm doing that capacity, that kind of work, if we're also looking at something that's more neurodiversity. Right. And think about sort of when you talk about that flow of the conversation and you have an issue with, let's say, something like working memory you're trying to pay attention to what's being said. You're trying to make it cohesive and you're trying to remember as that information is also continuing to be presented and formulate a response at the same time. That's a lot of stuff going on. And so it can often seem like you're having two different conversations. And I always like to make it clear when I talk about sort of issues with working memory or even the auditory processing, even small deficits have a big impact. So it doesn't necessarily mean that the working memory or the auditory processing has to be so impacted because even a couple of seconds, especially with the auditory processing and the reading, even a second or two is really a big deal. So we're not talking about like, well, I can't remember exactly what you said, but it's almost like as if there's a a one or two second delay And that causes a lot of problems. Yeah. Oh, gosh. I'm kind of having a moment here, too, where I'm thinking of other issues that couples often come in, and it's that they remember things differently. Yeah. Yeah, that's a whole other sort of issue about long-term memory, is that when we are using our long-term memory, we're not actually remembering the event. We're actually remembering the last time we remembered the event. Say that again. That feels really important. Yeah. When we pull information from our long-term memory. We're not actually remembering the event. We're only remembering the last time we thought about that event or remembered that event. Okay. This just like blew my mind open right there. And this is true for all of us. It's not true for people who have dyslexia or any 
thing, particularly on the spectrum. It's true for everybody. Yes. Okay. There was an interview I did like a year ago with a storyteller. And one of the things we were talking about was that she was saying, this is just observational. It's not necessarily grounded in research, but maybe it is. Maybe that's kind of what we're coming back to. That when she would coach people through telling a story and getting up on stage and performing that story, especially if it was a story full of shame, that it transformed something because once they got up on stage, now their memory is of that performance instead of of the shame filled. <laughs> that's a great observation. Wow. I like that a lot. Isn't that awesome? Yeah, that is. Yeah. Hmm. I'm trying to remember exactly what episode that was. That was with Eva Tenuto and it was way back in season one, but she tells the story of kind of her having that experience. And I think it's a really wonderful piece to connect back to this particular conversation we're having right now of how long-term memories of the last time that we remembered. Right. So this also connects to something else then, Larry. I was recently kind of reviewing some of the literature that's come out of this longitudinal study through Harvard University, this like 90-year study of like how men have been in their lives. And one of the things that impressed upon me in what I was looking at in the literature was how the quality of their relationships of these men who have been studied from like their 20s into their 90s. The, the quality of the relationships that these men were experiencing later mm-hmm. in their life, the, the study included things like, you know, obviously talking to the men and talking to the people in their lives, their children, their grandchildren, their parents, their partners, all of these different kinds of pieces of their relationship. It looked at their psychological health. It looked at their emotional health. Mm-hmm. It looked at their physical well-being. It, it really was a very comprehensive study longitudinally. And one of the things that it seemed to find that I was impressed by anyway, was that, you know, the men would report what their relationships were like, let's say their parents when they were 20, and then they would have a similar conversation with researchers about it, maybe when they were 70 or 90 years old. And depending on the relationships that existed in their life at the time, the way they looked at those early memories shifted. Yeah. So, so what you're saying yeah, is that memories are subjected to emotion. I guess that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Oh, it kind of makes it all feel more plastic, doesn't it? In a Mm -hmm. really nice way. Yeah. And it sort of also makes you question reality in general, but that's (laughs) (laughs) That's all another conversation. (laughs) You do a lot more couples work than I do, but haven't you sat there and said the same thing too, is what is the actual reality? Oh gosh, I've said the same thing in my own relationship. Yeah. yeah, I think this is definitely one of those things where I think it really is helpful for all of us to hear this. And kind of getting back to sort of the, what I think is important too is from following from what you just said is that maybe part of couples counseling is that since there is such a link between emotion and memory that if the couple's doing good work, I wonder if it's possible that their memories of what they experience actually changes if they end up in a more positive, affective state together, when they start thinking about some of their problems that they've had before, if not just the emotions change, but some of the narrative changes too. I'm sure of it. Yeah. Yeah. I think it happens, you know, in the best cases, it often happens slowly over time and it's somewhat even imperceptible. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, this Hmm. is fun. Yeah. I'd love to to pick your brain more and, and muse even longer on all things neurodiverse. But I think that there's so much more that I don't even know about yet to ask about. <laughs> well, can I add just one other sort of yes, thing that I, I want to mention about sort of dyslexia is that, you know, dyslexia isn't just a disorder about reading. It's also reading, spelling, and sort of... Spatial... Not so much spatial, but verbal written comprehension as well. And the problem also is that often dyslexia will also impact math skills because when children get a little bit older as well, they move from basic operations of mathematics to more complex and word problems. So now you're adding in another layer to math, which is not just the ability to understand numerical operations, but you have to understand the problem 
itself, the word problem. Then you have to use other skills like figuring out what's the relevant information within that sort of word problem. So we see dyslexia affecting not just the language arts, we see it moving possibly over to other issues like dyscalculia, which is sort of that the sort of the problems with math related to cognitive functioning as well. So it doesn't just stay in one little area, it migrates and affects other areas. I'm sure too. it affects a ton of other areas. Yeah. You know, I can imagine how it would affect learning a foreign language and yeah. social studies and science and you know like I think it's hard to imagine where it might not affect. And, and then also what happens because you might also have those issues sort of like with that fluid reasoning, that ability to generalize. What happens is, especially with the math with the children who maybe have dyslexia, is that they may learn one specific word problem, but if you change it a little bit, it doesn't generalize. And it's frustrating because they often are not getting the real part of learning, which is the concept behind it. And again, it's just like with the reading is the first couple of years, we're just learning our basic sort of skills. We're learning addition, subtraction. I forget which grade you sort of memorize your sort of multiplication tables. But after that, again, the children who don't have those early detection interventions are getting further and further left behind. Yes. In multiple areas, it's not. Yeah. It's not just one place. Yeah, and I just want to add. Just sorry. Well, yeah, please. Sort of the soapbox is that you know some of the myths about dyslexia is that there's gender differences that boys are more have higher rates of dyslexia than girls, but that's certainly not true at all. We know that it's equally distributed among the genders. So back when I was training, even we thought it was more of a, a, a gender based issue, and but it's. It's not. It's not. So we need to be aware because, you know, same thing with ADD. We kind of, you know, we don't often recognize it in girls. So we need to be more aware that it's out there and it affects both genders equally. Yeah, I think that's a really great point. Thank mm. you for that. Yeah. Mm. And that there's the myth that you can only detect dyslexia when a child knows how to read. And you can detect it and you can be tested even in kindergarten. Mm-hmm. So we don't wait. We want to do this as soon as possible. I think that's really helpful. I think the hardest part is finding the resources and the accessibility for the testing. Yeah, and there is a movement. And I've seen some sort of legislation that's been passed in different states that they are getting better at screening. So that's a good thing. And there have been in the last couple of years, some smaller sort of screening instruments. And I think that's really helpful. And I think there's states that are sort of mandating that it be done in kindergarten. So that's a good positive step. But I do worry that it's never going to get the same amount of attention as some of the other sort of neurodiversity, like the spectrum disorders. Mm -hmm. But I hope. That you think that's just because some of them are more easily diagnosed? Like you were saying earlier, when we first started talking that some of these are forgotten, they're just kind of hidden. I think it's just because it's, you have to delve so deeply into it and yeah. it's not always obvious yeah. where sometimes, you know, people are getting better and better at sort of hiding, recognize, well, recognizing the autism spectrum disorders. Got you. Larry, thank you. This yeah, has been my pleasure. a really wonderful conversation. Great and I, I think, yeah, a great way to spend the morning. Where can folks find you? I have a website, redbankpsych.com. I've written a couple of blog articles on dyslexia, what you might want to look for if you're having an independent evaluation. I've written some articles about ADD, about the myths of dyslexia, a bunch of just general stuff about learning disabilities. Maybe we'll call together a few yeah. of those special articles and we'll make sure to include links to them in our show notes. That would be awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much, Larry. This has been such a pleasure. It was great. You know, I'd love to hear what this episode brings up in you. And you can share your, your thoughts with me by hopping over to our community on Facebook or finding us on social media at Popscast. You can also send me an email at practiceofbeingseen at gmail.com. You know, there's, there's so many different ways for us to embody who we are. And I hope that one of the messages that you're taking away from 
all of these different explorations on the Popscast is that we're all on a quest to learn more about and believe in ourselves. And every single one of us is unique and different. And we're all kind of a bunch of misfits. But when we can kind of hone in on and claim and learn to tolerate the uneasiness that comes with being ourselves, it opens up amazing wells of potential within each of us. And that's the space where we can all be change makers in this world, where we all have infinite possibility. We're often taught that we have to be perfect. What if we're not? What if we want to explore a more wild side? This spring, I'm launching some online discussion groups on the wild woman. You can find more information about that at practiceofbeingseen.com slash events. I'd love to have you join us there. It's actually going to be a way that I'm try- a new way that I'm trying out to sustain the production of this podcast. So if you're interested in having a little bit of more a little bit more time in conversation with me and and a group of others online to be exploring these topics together once a month and to to really be diving in and, and getting to learn more about ourselves altogether then I encourage you to join the discussion group and help keep this podcast alive. There's also a link to click in the show notes if you're interested in working with me. The Practice of Being Seen podcast is produced by me, Rebecca Wong, along with the support of my amazing behind-the-scenes team, Nicole Stevenson and Christy Hausler. Music by Chris Ferris Jr. and Sr., produced by Kidney Stone Studio. We hope that you enjoyed the show. And you'll join us next week for another episode of The Pobscast, brought to you by Connectfulness.